Chapter 21 The Glory is Fleeting Arthur J. Strickler lounged in his Hancock Park mansion on Ridgewood Place and stared out the front window. Evening was coming on, and as always, his mind was unsettled. He lived alone, with the exception of a maid who came to clean up his dinner plates and wash his windows. A Japanese gardener came by once a week to trim his enormous hedges and mow his impeccable lawn. He had no dog to keep him company, nor cat to lounge on a nearby pillow. He preferred the silence at home, save for a large grandfather clock that ticked away every minute he was convinced had escaped him, leading to his inevitable death, the one thing he could not control. Strickler thought about Capra and that meddlesome kid, Evan West, and then he thought back to his old business partner again. He didn't know why he kept thinking about crooked Pete Flannery, but for some reason, the man clung to his brain like a leech. Strickler stood and took a walk across his living room as the evening shadows came on from the picture window. He stared at the framed presentation of his medals, and the memory of the day he met Pete Flannery came back again. Strickler had been wounded, bleeding, but had managed to walk five miles back from the battlefield. Pete spotted Strickler first and rushed over to him. The medics got him water and a cup of coffee, and Flannery helped carry Strickler to the aid station, where Strickler ended his great war service. Flannery stayed with Strickler, and made sure he was sent back to a military hospital in Paris, and they promised to stay in touch. Flannery had big plans to start a construction company in Los Angeles and was looking for men to go into business with, veterans and survivors like Strickler. A partner like that could go a long way. Strickler came back to the United States as a decorated Marine, Purple Heart, the Navy Cross, and the Croix de Guerre from the French government. He thought back to how he later found Pete Flannery in Los Angeles. Together, they incorporated Strickler Flannery Construction and went to work. Over the course of the 1920s, Strickler was married, had a son, and got divorced after the company folded in 1929. Strickler was destined never to see his son again. The boy died in 1932 from pneumonia, and in 1933, his wife drank herself to death in Chicago with a mountain of debts and a trail of broken hearts behind her. In 1928, when Strickler was still riding high with his construction company, the bank manager discovered discrepancies in the company's accounting ledgers. Strickler was asked to take a look at the books with an accountant, and that's when he experienced his second and perhaps more deadly trauma. His trusted partner, Pete Flannery, had embezzled from the company over the years. For the first time since 1919, when they began the company, they couldn't meet payroll. Strickler put in his own money to cover payroll and new construction, and when he confronted Pete Flannery, the situation deteriorated farther than he could have imagined. Not only did Flannery deny the accusation, he also blamed Strickler and threatened to sue him for malfeasance. Strickler left the meeting, drove home, 
got his M1911 service pistol, drove back to Flannery's house, and shot the man in cold blood. After he killed Flannery, Strickler dumped his body into a tub of wet cement and poured the sloshing gray liquid stone into the foundation of what would someday be the Mayfair supermarket on Hyperion Avenue. No one ever asked about Pete Flannery, and Strickler's assurances to anyone who asked was that Pete had stolen a lot of cash from the company and skipped town, and that was the end of that. No police investigation, no inquiries from relatives. Pete had no friends that he could tell. No one cared about him one way or the other. He was better off dead, and Strickler was a lot worse off broke. Strickler Flannery Construction folded in 1929. Arthur's wife had left him with their son, and he faced a mountain of debt and unpaid bills. He paid off every employee he owed wages to from his own accounts, obliterating ten years of built-up savings. He moved from his home in the Hollywood Hills and started over as a construction foreman at Republic Studios. He built one Old West town after the other using the same crews he once utilized in his own company, starting over as any survivor would. In 1931, because the movie business was literally the Wild West, Strickler was asked to help produce a series of singing cowboy movies, starring the then-unknown John Wayne. From there, he was given an office at Republic and more assignments, moving from Gene Autry films to Cops and Robbers movies mostly two-reelers, but by 1936, he was hired at Universal to produce Dracula's Daughter, his first full-length feature. The film did so well that the Universal front office then hired him to produce The Phantom Rider and Ride'em Cowboy. Strickler built up a reputation as a penny-pinching, hard-charging executive who gave directors a lot of leeway and was able to deliver a good product on time on budget, and without complications. He wasn't known for his wit or conversation. He wasn't liked or invited for golf at the Toluca Lake Country Club with Bing Crosby, but he was reliable. Strickler made money, accrued power, and kept to himself, putting distance between himself and the Hollywood drama that occurred every day. He never complained and kept his nose to the grindstone. Strickler looked to men like Jack Warner and Harry Cohn as his idols. Like him, they were ruthless and hungry, willing to do whatever it took to impose their will on others. Arthur had already killed. The act meant nothing to him. He never gave life a second thought. Like Stalin said, death solves all problems. No man, no problem. Arthur J. Strickler was a man who would look up to Stalin. Strickler still cursed the god that gave him a second chance because, with every business associate he encountered, he saw the German who brained him with his Mauser or Pete Flannery. They were all out to get him, unless he got them first. When Pearl Harbor was attacked in December 1941, Strickler saw an opportunity with so many young executives, directors, and actors joining the war effort. He had no interest in serving the United States. He'd already fought his war for Uncle Sam. 
From now on, his wars were his own. On battlefields, he chose. No more charging up Hill 142 with a bunch of green, eager Marines. From now on, he would lead the charge up Hill 142 with a brigade of tanks, poison gas, and artillery, all of his own making. He would lose no battles and win every war. There was such a vacuum of executives, Arthur was able to take his pick of empty desks to fill. In March 1942, he first chose to work for David O. Selznick, a drug-addicted, pathetic skirt chaser, was how Strickler summed him up. And then he went on to RKO, where he found he pretty much could run the place as he chose. He would make movies that he chose too, and he chose to make movies that depicted life as he saw it. If anyone needed an education on the bitterness of life, Arthur J. Strickler was the man to teach that lesson. He never forgot Ernie Rodriguez, Merle Olson, Sam Miller, Alfred Spencer, Steve Brill, Reed Hastings, Peter Beinhardt, Richard Sears, and John Hastings, all face up, rotting under a French sky, fighting a war that only made the world a worse place to live. They lived for everything and died for nothing. Arthur J. Strickler, a bitter, powerful, and lonely man, had chosen his one task on earth, to make sure everyone saw how deplorable life could be. He knew the reach of motion pictures, their power. He knew he could easily control the vast audiences that lined up every day to see Hollywood's latest product wash over them. He now had the opportunity of a lifetime. Hollywood's greatest feel-good director was now working for him. In his own little way, Arthur J. Strickler was about to steer the world his way. He would wave his wand and magically evaporate optimism and dreams, leaving behind a planet inhabited by men and women like himself. In some ways, he was very much like Mr. Potter, his favorite character in the story. And in time, he'd remake the world into a Pottersville of his own. He paced the floor and schemed. For whatever reason, the Evan West that suddenly appeared on the set of It's a Wonderful Life was a new opponent, the likes of which he'd never faced before. Something about that kid bothered him to his core but he couldn't put his finger on it. He couldn't stop him, couldn't cajole or bribe him. That he already knew. He'd have to banish him to the same concrete foundation Pete Flannery now slept. The sooner the better. The very thought of that made Strickler happy. Not overly so, because Strickler didn't know true joy. But the idea did hold a hint of satisfaction for him and that was all he needed to keep going. While Strickler was scheming, Evan was alone in Jimmy's house. He went to the refrigerator and made himself a ham sandwich, poured a glass of water from the tap, and this sadly tasted strange. Even 1946 L.A. had bad tap water, and contemplated while he ate. The movie was finished. He'd been blessed to have been a small part of it, He'd fallen deeply in love with Dorothy, and although he'd been here for several weeks, 
He knew he had to go back to... Where? Where would he go? Evan could only trust that Coop would somehow figure out how to make it happen. Evan was no scientist. He was a film geek and a darn good editor, but science eluded him. Evan made his way back to his guest house, but then stopped, spying a shadowy figure ahead of him, standing in the door to the guest house, a big grin on his face. Evan didn't have to venture farther to see who this was, Theodore Martin Huckabee beckoning him. Evan shook his head to clear the vision, hoping it was just a dream or mirage. But no, there he was, Theodore Martin Huckabee. Or at least a pretty good facsimile of him. Evan tried to rationalize why he'd seen this ghoul two nights in a row and realized it must be because this was what Coop was talking about. We don't belong here, Coop had told him. And rather than growing a sixth toe, Evan could see visions of lost souls who were trapped in the timeless void, and they weren't benign. These souls were out to drive him mad. Damn good work you did on that trailer, West, Huckabee said, grinning ghoulishly face splattered in blood. It got me going. Evan was not about to go anywhere near the guest house. No way. He stood there, weighing his options. You want to come talk with me? I want to know how you know me so well. I mean, your work touched me, man. Got my motor going. Evan backed away from Theodore Martin Huckabee hoping he would vanish, hoping against hope he would somehow fade back into the rippling currents of time. What's the matter? You too good for me, West? His hideous grin began to slide down, turning into an angry scowl. Before you turn your back on me and go back into Stuart's house to hide, I think you need to know something. Evan held his tongue. The last thing he needed to do was engage evil. He knew that much from the countless horror movies he'd watched over the years. Once evil called your name, if you engaged, it never let you go. You think you're above me, West. But let me tell you something, and I want you to remember this forever. You and me, we're alike. If you had half a chance, you'd shoot Arthur Strickler and Connor Alcott, and it wouldn't be from some obscure ambush point. You'd do it up close and personal, so you could see the fear in their eyes. Evan had heard enough. He backed up against Jimmy's door and opened it hastily, closing it behind him with a bang. Evan glanced over his shoulder and through the window. Huckabee was still there staring at him. Then he made an obscene face, his tongue rolled out, eyes open wide. It chilled Evan to his marrow. He'd never forget that face for the rest of his life. He made his way into the kitchen again and turned on the small Philco Jimmy had on the counter. The Jack Carson show was on. Jack's distinctive voice was wisecracking about the strange relatives that came by to visit his house on 22 North Hollywood Lane. Evan peered out the back window. 
Huckabee seemed to be gone, if he had indeed ever been there. Either Evan's mind was playing tricks on him, or he was losing it. Probably both. He felt himself getting sleepier. The overwhelming newness of being where he was fatigued him. Still, he had no intention of going back to the guest house. Evan walked into the living room, more asleep than awake now. He stumbled to a large, comfortable leather chair, sank into it, and drifted into an uneasy slumber. He was awakened by the sound of the front door opening, then closing, then uneven footsteps. Evan stood up, brushed himself off, and tried to look presentable. Jimmy noticed Evan and gave him an offhand wave. Hello, Evan, old boy, old pal, Jimmy said, speech slurred. Sit down, have a drink. Evan quickly ascertained that Jimmy was far more inebriated tonight than at the party at John Wayne's. It wasn't like him. Evan knew that much. Jimmy wasn't exactly the drinking type. Bogart, Houston, Cooper, Wayne, yes. Jimmy, no. It looked wrong on him, like wearing a bright green suit with a yellow tie. Jimmy weaved his way over to the bar and poured three fingers of pinch scotch. He handed it to Evan then poured himself four. He gulped it back and plopped down in a chair across from him. I never asked you this before, but I might as well. What did you do over there in the war, kid? Jimmy asked. Nothing like you, Jimmy. It's a long story, but nothing like what you went through. I respect that, Jimmy said, nodding absently. Better than being over there. It was the worst thing. Worst thing you could imagine. Jimmy knocked back his drink, finishing half the glass in three gulps. You see, I was 8th Air Force, he explained. Evan nodded. He knew. I commanded the 703rd Bomb Squadron. We flew B-24s. A beast of a plane. You know the B-24? Flying that bus gives you a big left arm, holding the yoke with one hand, controlling the throttles with the other. Jimmy demonstrated, holding out his left hand and making his right a claw, pretending to hold on to four engine throttles. I was appointed operations officer of the 453rd Bomb Group, and later the chief of staff for the 2nd Combat Wing, 2nd Air Division of the 8th. Any of that ring a bell? Evan nodded again. I knew you were a pilot in the war. Wasn't sure of which unit. But you flew over Germany? A haunted look passed over Jimmy's face. He finished his drink, got up to reload. Sure, sure, I flew over Germany. Eighth was based out of England. We had some missions over occupied France, Holland, Belgium, and yeah, Germany. How many combat missions did you fly? Evan asked. Jimmy sipped more of the pinch. Twenty in all? Yeah, twenty. When you're in the air in combat, you count every minute. 
because you know one of them might be your last. Cold as hell up there. You know, the planes are built to be as light as they can be. Jimmy's speech had become even more garbled. When I was up there, I forgot I was an actor. You know, all I wanted to do was bomb the target with a good tight pattern and get my men back home. Evan leaned forward. He took a swig of the scotch, and it burned. Did you? Not always, no. We always lost a few on every mission. Every single one. We never came back without a bloody nose. Jimmy reminisced with a grimace. The Germans were good. They had radar. They knew when we were coming and where. The flak was bad enough, but when they sent up fighters, that's when you... you got nervous. The fighter was... he was the boogeyman. The fighter had eyes, and in a great many instances, the fighter had a pretty competent fella at the controls. And when he latched onto you, you were in trouble. And I was in trouble plenty of times. Evan, you can't imagine how terrifying that is up there. A long way from home, and you just gotta get through it. Not like you can close your eyes and make it go away. You just had to go through it. And it got to me, I'm not ashamed to say. It got to everybody. What got you through? Evan asked. Jimmy looked wistful, then half grinned. 91st Psalm. My dad sent it to me in a letter before I went to England. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, and keep thee in thy ways. Dad knew what he was doing. Rather than respond, Evan allowed the silence to remain. When we finally got back to base and saw all those planes limping in, unloading their wounded and dead, I was never relieved. I never felt like we'd accomplished anything other than surviving. Jimmy stood and headed over to his library. He pulled out a book entitled Second Air Division, Eighth Air Force, USAAF. He hobbled over to Evan and flipped open the book, pointing at the photos of grim-faced American airmen posed in front of their parked bombers. Half of these guys never made it home. We took 50% casualties, Evan. Newspapers don't report that, but it's true. Half. Civil War-era casualties. And the Germans kept fighting even up to the end, when they had jets. Can't blame them for not giving up until they did. Why? Evan asked. They knew they were beaten. Why keep fighting? A grim look crossed Jimmy's face. Would we quit, even if we knew we were beaten? We'd never quit. Just like those fellas in the Philippines in 1942 didn't. They fought until the bitter end. So, even though they were Nazis and terrible, such a terrible regime, I understand why they wouldn't quit. He plopped back down on the chair 
and stared off into the distance. Not a day goes by when I don't think about those young men under my command who didn't make it back. Not one. A long silence lapsed between them. There was nothing left to say. Jimmy stood again and headed to the bar. When I remember this stuff, sometimes it's better that I forget it. He poured another drink, this one not as full as the last. Evan downed the last of his drink. The warmth of Scotland filled his bones. The water of life, as the Scots called it. He watched Jimmy down his, hoping to stretch out his time with the star. He didn't want to go back to that guest house, though he was not about to tell Jimmy why. How did your date go? Evan asked, and Jimmy cheered up, or at least appeared to. She's a sweet girl, really. We had a good time yucking it up. I think I like her, Evan. How was the food? Evan asked. Better than I thought. You were right. I dug into the steak and kept away from the peppers. Drank a few too many beers, but I guess that's where I'm at right now. And thinking too much about the war. Gloria took my mind off it. But it's always right here. Jimmy tapped his forehead. Gives me the blues. Jimmy yawned, stretched. Okay, Ev. Stay down here all you like. I'm going up. Jimmy went into the kitchen, poured himself a glass of water, and gulped it down. He returned to Evan and clapped him on the shoulder. Glad you're here, Ev, Jimmy said. Stay down here as long as you like. Like having you around. Jimmy trudged upstairs slowly, taking every step carefully like men who've had too much to drink do. Evan studied Jimmy and saw his face etched with anguish. He couldn't begin to imagine what Jimmy had gone through, and although the alcohol was designed to kill the bad memories, it was failing at its task, simply dredging up the darkness and punctuating it with the cold dread that drink brings on. Evan got up and peered out to the guesthouse, which now looked more like some haunted house from a horror movie than the friendly Jimmy Stewart-owned guesthouse he'd been so fortunate to stay in while there. He couldn't see Huckabee, but he could feel his presence, like staring into the alligator pit at the zoo or handling a sack full of snakes. It was a madness he could feel creeping in, just like the conversation he had just had with Jimmy. He was right when he stated Evan couldn't begin to imagine the terror at 25,000 feet above the Third Reich, the sky filled with clouds of red and black death, Luftwaffe fighters screaming in at impossible speeds at the lumbering bomber formations, spewing machine gun and cannon fire at those fragile planes. He couldn't begin to imagine the terror of keeping those planes on target dropping bombs, and then having to fly all the way back to England with fighters following, repeating the 91st Psalm over and over, and hoping it was true. 
For Jimmy, that Bible verse got him home. Evan had read too many times about the guys who felt they were doomed and actually were. Their minds convinced them that they were going to die, and in time they did. Evan went back to his chair, deciding he'd have another drink. That scotch was incredibly good. If he had enough, he might actually develop a taste for it. Evan sunk into the chair, picked up the book Jimmy had showed him, and leafed through it. He gazed at those young men in their leather jackets, standing or kneeling before their bombers, with names like Bouncin' Betty and Big Time Operator, with pretty Varga girls emblazoned on the nose. Evan wondered who those young men were, whether they made it home or not. He wanted to ask Jimmy sometimes, but maybe he shouldn't. He did remember an incident when he was a kid that happened sometime in the 2000s. A neighbor came by who had served as a Marine in the Iraq War. When they went in the pool, Evan noticed ugly scars along his torso, and he asked his mom what they were. His mom told him those were war wounds, and Evan wanted to ask the Marine what happened. Evan's mother said something he never forgot. Real heroes don't tell stories. He remembered that, and then heard Jimmy coming back downstairs, now dressed in his pajamas. Jimmy reached for the bottle of pinch. I'd like to spend a little time with my friend, Ev, if you don't mind. Sorry, I'm stinko. No way for one man to see another. It's just that, doggone it, I get gloomy thoughts sometimes. Evan handed him the album, and Jimmy stumbled back, caught himself, then headed back up the stairs, missing a few as he stomped his way up. Evan was left alone downstairs. His fear of Huckabee and that guest house too great for him to leave the room. He might as well make a night of it. It helped that Jimmy's living room was one of the best places he'd ever stayed in. Evan dwelled on Jimmy Stewart. Whatever he saw and experienced in the bloody skies over Europe would never leave him. A 50% casualty rate. He hadn't known that. Evan had always thought the Americans came through the Great Wars somewhat unscathed and didn't get hit hard until Vietnam. He was such a Hollywood rat, he got most of his history from the movies. And in the movies, World War II was a grand adventure. Even Saving Private Ryan, with its horrible opening, ended with a handful of G.I.s taking out an entire German SS Panzer Brigade. The idea that one of every two bomber crewmen didn't return home was, well, to Evan, a punch in the face. That meant the Americans had das boot-like casualties. It modified Evan's gauzy viewpoint of what had occurred between 1939 and 1945. His generation had never faced anything that dire. Hell... The people in his generation seemed to think that being eyed suspiciously by a shopkeeper or asked to change their haircut by an employer was the equivalent of Stalingrad or the Rwanda massacre. Evan heard Jimmy's bedroom door open, and the man emerged, empty bottle in hand. 
He came downstairs, weaved to the bar, but noticed there was no more scotch. He set the bottle down gently, looked to Evan, and shrugged. Jimmy plopped down on the couch across from Evan, reclined, and drifted to sleep. Evan went to the linen closet and pulled out a blanket and pillow. He went to Jimmy and shook him awake. Jimmy, wake up. Here's a pillow. Jimmy stirred and squinted up at him. What's that, West? Oh, a pillow, thanks. Man can't sleep without a pillow, he muttered, and then conked out as soon as his head hit it. Evan covered Jimmy with a blanket and watched him a while. Jimmy wasn't a sound sleeper, squirming, shivering, and shaking his head. He muttered in his sleep, gasped, and at one point shouted. Evan watched him reliving the horror in the skies again. It was hard to see a man in so much mental anguish. Jimmy hit it well during the day, but he couldn't subdue it during his sleeping hours. No one deserved that. No one. Evan's eyes were weary again. The alcohol, fear of Huckabee, and fatigue were getting to him. He sunk down low in his chair and fell asleep. He dreamed of United States Army Air Force B-24s, Luftwaffe fighters, men screaming over the intercom and flak bursts, all while Huckabee looked on and laughed at the horror, reveling in it. Dorothy reclined in bed next to Richie, watching him sleep. She thought about her life and where she was. Between the waitressing, business courses, and Richie, how could she have time for Evan West? And yet she would make time for him. There was something about him she could not put her finger on. Something indefinable. She felt wonderful when he was around. Maybe it was because he was different. He was nothing like any other man she knew. He was smart, polite, incredibly open-minded, and seemed to genuinely love her. She found him most enchanting when he smiled and laughed. Dorothy shook her head. Some people were just too good to be true. She went to the kitchen and poured herself a glass of lemonade. She thought about everything facing her, a young widow, a single mother still living at home with her son. She couldn't sleep. She felt uneasy about something, nothing she could put her finger on. She'd bitten her nails down to nothing, worrying about unseen phantoms in the night. Dorothy sipped her lemonade and stared off into the distance, trying to remember the old Chinese saying, that the birds of worry and care fly over your head, this you cannot change. But that they build nests in your hair, this you can prevent. <laughs>